Hey Disruptors, um, so excited to be here tonight. Uh, we've got a, a bonus voice in our conversation about doubt just to round out some of the issues that we've been talking about. So tonight we're really excited to be welcoming Nicole Connor to the podcast. Nicole is a, a, a blogger, a writer, she's a narrative therapist and a history lecturer. She's got a really interesting history. She's been, um, she's pastored a mega church in Melbourne and she's got a lot to say about this concept of of doubt and of questioning and liminality and yeah I'm really excited to talk to her tonight so welcome to the podcast Nicole thanks so much for talking to us tonight thank you Tan thank you so much for the opportunity and the welcome um, and a great subject to be chatting about that's awesome um yeah so I guess you know we've been talking about doubt we've had um four episodes so far talking about um, just our perspectives on doubt, and we know that you have written some really insightful things on your blog about this concept of liminality, and mm-hmm. um, also recently wrote a chapter in a book, um, which I'm going to plug just a little bit. Um, called "Neither Here Nor There: The Many Voices of Liminality." I I actually really love saying that word; like it sounds really nice, um, <laughs> but it's also just such a beautiful concept like I really love the concept of liminality I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about how um, liminality and faith intersect and and how you define it and think about it in in that space yes thank you Tom Um, I was I became interested in aspects of liminality predominantly first because it gave me language to where I found myself after I fell out of love with certainty. (laughs) So I found that, look, in this chapter that you mentioned in the book, I talk about my introduction to, you know, the flavor of Christianity that we would probably refer to as fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. And in my particular um, case, it was expressed through a Pentecostal version of that. And, you know, as a child growing up, I was not immune to the sufferings of the world, so to speak. And so, um, you know, when you look for certainty, fundamentalism provides a very good, uh, or safety rather, safety and certainty, fundamentalism provides very good boundaries. Mm. And there certainly is, you know, aspects of it that I treasure and others that I found increasingly toxic. So as I became quite, um, what's the word, I wouldn't even say disillusioned, but questioning, doubting, there we go, doubting some of the absolute claims made in these places of fundamentalist religions or religion, in my case, Christianity, I um, I found myself, I was no longer then part of a very tight-held tribe, the fundamentalist tribe with its you know, very strong borders of who's in and who's out based on belief mm-hmm. system. And <clears throat> so I found it hard to describe where I was at. I, I found it difficult to express it in language. And the word that came to me through books and other people was liminality. Mm. Of course, from the Latin word limen, meaning threshold. And, you know, for those who are interested in looking that up, you know, the the author Victor Turner wrote about that, I think, in the 1960s by memory, and he wrote a book called Betwixt and Between where he um, studies liminality in the sense of a person being part of, in his 
particular case, you know, the rites of passage, for example, of a child going from childhood to adulthood or from and the initiation rites that go in this betwixt and between stage of where you're leaving one way of being, thinking, belonging, and before you integrate it into the next space, you have this this liminal space. And so that's where the word kind of has somewhat of a history, although it was used much earlier, I think in the 1800s, by a guy called Van Ginnett, I think. I can't even remember. Sorry, I should have looked that up before this (laughs) podcast. But... um, yeah, so liminality, this the space of of leaving something, a belonging, a ideology, whatever, and not having landed in a place yet where you integrate it back into a tribe or a system of belief that you feel at home in. And so, you know, there's many um, aspects of, I guess, the spiritual life that talk about it. St. John of the Cross, I think, in some ways refers to it when he talks about the dark night of the soul. Um, you know, Hagberg and Gulick wrote a book called The Critical Journey, which talks about the stages of faith. Again, a book I highly recommend. And mm-hmm. really, liminality has to do with a stage that they talk about, which is called the wall, you know, this place where you hit something, where suddenly your ideals and um, the things that you've believed no longer line up with your life experience. Mm-hmm. And the doubt, the disorientation, sometimes even the, a form of depression that you find yourself in in that space. Mm. So I don't even know where the answer to your question. So I just went off on a tangent, Tan. Sorry. Absolutely. No, I, I think absolutely. I think our listeners will, will identify that, um, yeah, a lot. I, I'm just really interested, do you think once we enter that stage of transition where nothing's really certain, do you think we can ever emerge from that? Do you think there's an end point? Oh, that is such a really, really good question. And I think, you know, history shows that people have debated that very question over the years. When you when you suddenly take the pill and, and you discover the matrix, can you enter yeah. the matrix again? And I would probably say probably not in the in what you've known. You you probably once you awaken to certain realities, you probably have a difficulty adjusting back into certain spaces like they were. However, can I say that we can integrate back into a form of a faith and belonging? I, I would say mm. so. I, I think we've just come to realise that the denial of doubt that might have been part of our first half of life is no longer possible. Mm. You know, the Spanish um, philosopher Miquel du Nomino said this wonderful thing. He says, those who believe that they believe in God but without passion in their hearts and without anguish in their mind and without uncertainty, without doubt, without an element of despair, even in their consolation, believe only in the God idea, not in God himself. Mm. And, you know, I, I have that little quote, as you can tell, <laughs> glued on, on a lot of places in my home because it reminds me that this second half of life when you've, gone through some crisis in your life or you've suddenly been shaken out of this first half of life where everything was just hunky-dory, you cannot enter in a relationship with faith again, I don't think, without the recognition that doubt and despair will sit at your dinner table on a regular yeah. basis, and that's part of faith. That's yeah. part of what faith is, is recognizing that the guests around the dinner table also include doubt and the questioning and the critical thought that we need to apply to the very ideas we hold. Yeah. So 
um, in respect to that, what um, what does faith look like for you now? What does religion and and what does church look for you look like for you now that you're in that place? So I think you know I had a little bit of what I would call an allergic to re- reaction to religious institutions because of my own experience. So yeah, I was deeply integrated in a space for you know several decades, and. I think I became disillusioned with that particular flavor, not that anybody did anything wrong or were mean. Mm. It was more how the mechanism of religious institution works, not just in my particular Mm. setting, but how I observed it in other settings as well. And I think there was something in me that began to question, and because our particular flavor of when you add fundamentalism and Pentecostalism, and I don't know your background, tell me you might have experienced this, questioning is not welcomed. So there was no place where you could question and ask some very tough questions Mm -hmm. in regards to the ideals and probably the methodology of how we do church. And because of that, I became increasingly um, concerned. And for my own, it began to affect of how I, I began to have ethical pain and Mm -hmm. pain in regards to my value system that didn't line up with some of the things I observed. And so for me, I had to make some choices, and one of them was to distance myself. And I'm only now beginning to beginning to really search again for a place or a community where my faith can be expressed in this communal sense, where as much as church or is not perfect, but where my values and ethics are not at odds mm. with some of the things that I observe. So... Um, for and the reason that it's taken me so long is you know it's taken me a couple of years is part of it was geographical we kind of spend a bit of time in Sunshine Coast in the jungle <laughs> and we've recently moved back to Melbourne and but we kind of on the outskirts and now about to make a move into the more closer to the city and mm-hmm. it's at that place where I've now researched and found a few places that I would like to step in again so I'm not certainly not opposed to church I think you know I've been accused of that in the past that's not the case sure but I do feel like for me personally it's been a journey it's been that liminal journey of leaving a certain space behind Mm. being able to navigate or being allowed to rather be navigate this betwixt and between stage and now considering okay this reintegration what will it look like for me and, Mm. and in what community will I feel at peace in regards to my beliefs, but more importantly, my values and ethics mm. in how we do church and how people are treated in churches. Yeah. Is there anything you miss about what you've left? Really good question. Um, I think because my my um, exit <laughs> out of church was rather abrupt and rather fierce, trying to think of a word to do abrupt is probably a good a good one is you know I think I uh, there's nothing I would change however I know my exit disappointed a lot of people because I questioned for example um, our treatment of LGBTIQA plus people Mm -hmm. in church setting in conservative church settings and I guess suddenly because of that and you know I won't go into the whole story People stop. People who were friends for a very long time, or who are considered friends because I drank the Kool Aid and believed that people cared, <laughs> and you know everybody is family, blah blah blah. But suddenly, I began to realize that 
by questioning or by going, well, I'm sorry, I don't agree with this, my whole belonging was questioned. So people who had known me for years stopped speaking to me. Mm-hmm. And so that took a while to to process. And so when I, you say, what do I miss? I probably miss the ability to be in relationship with these people. But I realize now that that probably is not going to happen. It's got nothing to do with forgiveness or, you know, holding a grudge or anything like that. It's just that for some people, the way we progress or or change in our lives is threatening or it's it's not conducive to where they stand in their particular faith journey. Mm-hmm. And so they see us as a threat or something to fear. And I began to realize that more and more. And at first it makes you angry and then you go, well, we all have done that. I've done that in the past. And you yeah. just come to a place of acceptance. So what do I miss? Probably relationships, but I wouldn't go, I couldn't go back. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's, that's probably it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in, in one of our podcasts, we spoke about how perhaps um, in our marriages, like you said, in your close relationships, you had to let, let some of those things go. And obviously, um, in, a, in a marriage, that's a little bit harder. You, you can't mm-hmm. let that go. Um, so how did you find navigating, you know, those, those very close relationships, the ones that you yeah. aren't willing to let go? How did you navigate those in the midst of this? Well, maybe if we can just for a moment talk, you know, about our partners or or people who are married in our marriages, um, you know, that is difficult. So, you know, for a while there on certain issues, my partner and I, my husband and I had very different views on Mm. things. However, we have now been married for 30 odd years and I forgot how long we've I've been married. This is terrible. It could be the t- thirty. <laughs> Don't, I won't even go there because it will stress me for the rest of the night. But I know it's over thirty years, and and we probably very early on recognized several things in our particular marriage, and that was we came from extremely different backgrounds. Like sure, you couldn't. You know, like we like that movie. I don't know whether you've ever seen Meet the Fockers. <laughs> but we laughed at first and then we, we kind of almost watched it like a documentary because it was our lives. You know, my, my, my partner comes from, like he was, you know, he's been a Christian since the womb and grew up in very, you know, tight religious circles, whereas mm. I come from the barbarian hordes and came <laughs> to a faith in Christ in, in South Africa. Yeah. And, you know, come from very strong ethics and feminist ideals. And so we had to settle on very early on that we had to learn to hold together despite differences. Yeah. And we managed to and to do that with respect and kindness. You see, mm-hmm. you see people grit their teeth through that and are angry at their, their partner all the time. We wanted we didn't want that. We wanted to be able to hold differences, understand that we are made differently, think differently, and to be able to do that with a certain amount of kindness. Mm-hmm. And that takes a lot of work. And so I guess, you know, when it came to some of the big heavy things that we later on had to debate, you know, more recently in like uh, around the year of 2015, 2014, fortunately for us, we already had practiced that <laughs> to a degree. So, you know, there were what I would call fierce conversations. And when when people hear that word fierce, they often think it mean, or I don't mean that at all. I mean fierce as in let's talk about these things that we differ in and is there a place we can resolve them 
with and if not, you know, because often you hold differences that aren't that easily resolved. Can we mm. hold that space of not having it resolved, still mutually respecting and being kind to one another? Mm. And I think that is such a a thing we, we all need to practice. We still practice it. We're certainly not good at it because, you know, and then it's like becomes heated and we all say things that we don't mean. But we know that we have a history of being able to do this. We have a skill in this. And I think it's a skill we can all acquire. This isn't something innate to be able to communicate effectively. It's just something we want to learn and begin to learn. So mm. I think in differences – you know, it's not a matter of, of agreeing. I, I, I totally am against this whole, oh, God, that that ideal of just having, you know, because we're married, we have to agree on everything. Why? Because mm. it says, who, where do we get those ideas from? That So and, boring. And it's so boring, but the pressure we put on ourselves that, you know, suddenly we don't agree on something, there's something wrong. It's like, yeah. you know, as humans, we will disagree, and our culture and our background and our history will ensure that we disagree on certain things. And I think the more we can practice holding those disagreements with kindness and understanding, you know, the more the better we become at it. And so then when the biggies come, you know, like they inevitably come into all of our lives, mm. hopefully we have a little bit of confidence in our skill to be navig- to be able to navigate those. Does that yeah. make sense? It absolutely does. Yeah. And not just for marriage, for, you know, for all the relationships that we hold mm. close, you know, that, that comes into all of them. Well, so. and, and, and I think the key in any close relationships is are we able to talk about this? Are we able to express our different opinions, our thoughts, our questions without having our sense of belonging in these relationships mm. become threatened? And yeah. that is not always the case. And so the when when you start taking close relationships and you overlay them in religious settings and then in conservative religious settings and then maybe in settings where questioning and critical thinking is not always encouraged or part of the norm, then it becomes far more complex and difficult. And for yeah. in some cases those relationships do break down and that's most unfortunate because I don't think that needs to happen. Mm, yeah. You obviously, um, you know, stories – as such a rich part of of your being, and you know, you describe yourself as a storyteller. Yes. Um, you know your your history background, and then um, narrative therapy. Like I, I just I love that concept. Um, I, I don't know much about it, but um, it sounds like such a a wonderful way of discovering things about yourself. So, mm. how do you think stories about yourself and about the world? How do you think that's helped you? And mm. how does it help other people navigate this, these seasons of uncertainty? Yeah, the, really, thanks, Tam, for asking that. Um, I, the, the, the whole study of narrative therapy was a new concept for me back in mm. 2016 when I started looking into it. And I stumbled across um, a friend that talked about it, and it made sense to me and stumbled upon this co- course that is um, – you know, of narrative therapy by the Dulwich Centre in Adelaide and partners with Melbourne University. So I read about it, and, of course, back then I was living in the jungle in Queensland. <laughs> I thought, oh, I'll do this. Of course I'll do it in a year. Well, I nearly killed myself doing a master's <laughs> in a year. But it was certainly providential because narrative therapy, 
therapy again gave language to me. It mm. provided me with ideas and concept of why I loved storytelling so much and why I found it helpful. It also, to a certain degree, brought a great amount of healing to my own life that I felt was key in, you know, you just see the hand of God, providence at work in our lives on a consistent basis. It's like God leans towards us in so many ways that we can't even describe. So anyway, here I'm going off to Dulwich Centre and doing this course and very stressed with all the studies, but being very confronted by some of the things I'm learning and because part of the course is practicum, so you have to do X amount of hours a week practicing narrative therapy. Mm. And narrative therapy, in a sense, Auntie, Auntie Barb Vingard, who's an elder at um, Dulwich Centre, she talks about uh, telling, the, you know, in, in the Aboriginal context, telling stories that make us stronger. And I think it's a beautiful description about what narrative therapy is all about. It's about resisting the effects of trauma on our lives and telling stories not a, that gives you know, so much um, time to the trauma as in ways that we, skills that we have and that we build on that make us stronger. So we tell the stories in such a way. So, for example, you know, first of all, it's the recognition that everybody has a story and it's their right to tell the story in the way and with the words that they want to use. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing that became very key in narrative therapy is the problem is always externalized. And I found that very refreshing because in some of, you know, the Christian ways we kind of take everything innately, like there's something wrong with us as people instead of going, no, there's a problem. Now let's take mm. this problem and let's put it outside of ourselves and let's look at it and let's describe it and let's see what it looks like outside of ourselves. Because the mi minute we, we take the problem outside of ourselves, we no longer are the problem. <laughs> we yeah. no longer carry the guilt of that problem. We can suddenly look at it far more objectively and tell the stories around it in a far healthier way than saying that I am a shameful person or I am this. Instead of saying, no, shame is the problem. And there's a history and culture that brought shame into our lives. And let's hear about that in that person's own words and the stories that made it. But then let's also talk about how that person has resisted shame and what that resistance tells them, tells us about their value system and how those values and how those stories are linked to the dreams and hopes and dreams for their future. So mm -hmm. it's, it's really an honoring way of realizing that everybody is the expert of their own story. We are not the expert of the stories. And I think for some in religious especially who've maybe had um, abuse when it comes to religious leaders, recognizing that they were and are not the experts of those people's stories. We are all the experts of our own story. Mm. And we tell the stories in the words that we want in the ways that make us stronger, puts the power back into the hands and the heart of the person that owns that narrative. I found it very transformative, and I don't know whether my big jumble just made any sense at all but look on the Tullidge uh, Centre in Adelaide and it tells, tells a little bit more about narrative therapy. Yeah fantastic um, and obviously yeah super powerful in those times where you do feel um, yeah, vul that vulnerability of, of being a little bit lost mm. um, just taking ownership yeah. of, of your story where that might be not something that you've been used to doing 
No, and I think, look, there's so many things of why we give power to other people, Mm. why we give the power of our story, of our lives to quote-unquote experts. Mm. And, um, you know, and then, of course, in religion and in conservative religion, you know, we have this whole idea that comes around what it means to be a leader and this whole, the whole words of honour and, you know, it's like, it's like religious leaders become celebrities that have the mm. last say in our lives. And we really need to stop for a moment and consider that. And why, why, why do we do that? Mm. And is that really scriptural, <laughs> you know, and yes. is it something that we want to continue in our lives or do, we, is there a moment when we go, no, actually this is my story. These are the words I want to use to tell my story. I am the expert of my story and I have every mm. right to tell it. So, yeah, I, um, I do think we need to consider why we give power to other people, especially the power of our story to other people. Absolutely. Um, in saying that, obviously, um, it can be quite an isolating experience to be in that um, in-between, mm. the betwixt time. Um, when you were there, what were there any resources or were there voices that you found to listen to that gave you a little bit of, of guidance through that time? Were there yes, helpful um, voices? Very many helpful voices. Oh, gee, I wish I'd listed them all, but um, I found I had to look outside my tribe at that mm. time and my tribal belonging in regards to faith to look at some of the voices in order to find language. Because once you find language that describes your situation, you go, oh, thank you, that is so helpful. It's like somebody is, you know, supporting you in, in this space. So funnily enough, for me, I found a lot of comfort, first of all, in some of the Catholic mystics mm-hmm. and uh, theologians and writers, uh, the writings of Richard Raw. I thought um, Falling Upwards was just one of those wonderful books that I read that provided language for my particular story. Um, We're big fans of Richard, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Richard Raw, the writings of Brennan Manning, um, you know, the Ragamuffin Gospel I absolutely loved. Mm -hmm. Um, I liked Henry Nowen. I've got all his writings. Um, Jean Vanier who writes about the large community and what faith looks like in that particular community. Um, I'm just rattling some thoughts and books off. And, of course, then, Mm. again, the Dulwich Centre, if you go on the link, there's lots of free little articles written by a host of authors from all around the world that speak into this space because often they are dealing with people in trauma and crisis and so mm. again it uh you know it they, I, f- I just found their writings very helpful I'm trying to think my brain little brain's going 100 miles an hour <laughs> um no worries Padre Gautuma uh, he's one of the authors and contributors in neither here nor there in the anthology of this book and an Irish poet and theologian again providing great language and thoughts of what it means to live in this betwixt and between space. Um, I was trying to find one of his poems recently. I think I've got something here where he says, 
It's like a thin place, a narrow place, a place where living where the living and the dead commune, where heaven and earth all regard each other. Because he talks about liminality and this Celtic place of thin places being very, very similar. So, yeah, there's lots of voices I found helpful and drew comfort. And I also uh, went away on retreats with um, Sisters of Mercy and just Mm. their gentle expression of their faith I found very healing and very helpful. Mm. So, yeah, I, I think do you know, for anybody who finds themselves in that, there are voices, there is language for what you're walking through and often just finding that language and finding mm. something that resonates is so very helpful. I, I love that you're talking about language because I feel like um, in that traditional or, um, you know, in, in churches there's such a, a jargon Mm. of how we talk and and the words that we use that's um i don't know you can almost identify people by by the language that that they use and once you let go of that as you say you you need to find new words you need to find a new way of talking about the the place that you're in and yeah I, i i love that concept of finding the finding the words to give you the confidence to move into that new place that's that's a really well, nice thing. I think it's such an interesting discussion because language forms identity, doesn't it? Mm. And so in the first half of life, when we're very much in the honeymoon season, we have a certain language. It's a tribal language. And like you said, we recognise it, we hear it. Sometimes when we've mm. gone through difficult times in those settings and we find ourselves outside of we actually react to that language. I find myself mm-hmm. still to this <laughs> day, you know, phrases and shares and my whole eye starts twitching and I thought I actually can't can't it's like you know when I was a child in South Africa my mother had a bunch of frankfurters on the table that I wasn't meant to touch but you know she went out and I basically ate the whole plate of frankfurters (laughs) and I was sick for two days like sick you know, food poisoning or whatever I had, I don't know. But to this day, I still can't look a frankfurter in the face. Yeah, it's yeah. like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> like, and I think there's some truth to that. You know, we, we sometimes, for whatever myriad of reason, we get food poisoning to a certain flavor of religion. Yeah. And that food poisoning interprets its way or finds its way into language. And so what I began to realize is once I got that metaphor in my head, I understood why I react to certain things and, you know, certain cliches and phrases that people use. And I just, you're trying not to react to that person because you understand they just saying it from the goodness of their heart and yeah. out of the tribal language. But for yourself, it, it's become really problematic. Mm. And, then, and then on the other hand, like you said, is you do find new language that talks about your new migration of identity where you find Mm. yourself now and the belonging and the space you're in and it it resonates deeply you know Mm. words that maybe were not used at all or hardly at all in that first half of life like diversity inclusivity suddenly become a rich language in your new world and it's Mm. it's it's wonderful yeah it's Mm. healing absolutely well thanks so much nicole i think um yeah i I'm feeling so refreshed by by that chat. Like you, obviously have um, have a lot of wisdom and have have just travelled that road with um, I don't know, just a degree of of confidence or um, yeah. And you've just, I think it's nice to have people that have 
walked it or are still walking it that we can look to and go, hey, you know, this isn't so scary and and people are yeah. doing it and and Tam, I, yeah. I do thank you for that. I just I do want to say to anybody listening, this is Nicole a few years on, you know, a couple of years on. And I think when you first go through crisis or when you first become disillusioned with whatever you may be going through, mine was a different setting, is you do feel very, very lost. Mm. You know, so you're hearing me on an you know, a couple of years down the track, having processed, having thought, having read, having had many conversations and prayers and prayers that I thought sometimes went absolutely nowhere. (laughs) But so this is me coming to the other side of it. And I think it's, it's easy to listen to me now and go, oh, well, she would have done that. You know, she had just had this. No, it was actually at times really painful. At times I felt very, very lost. At times you kind of go, shivers, will I ever make this? And, but I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm on the other side. And if my story gives hope, that's great. But I don't want p- to give people the impression that I just, that this was just a magic sail across. It's not, it's, and I want to acknowledge people's pain and the feeling of loss, being depressed or whatever may mm-hmm. come with that space is very real. And we need to look at it and feel it because that is the reality of our, of our story and journey. Absolutely. Well, thanks. Thanks for your vulnerability and your honesty. Um, it's been really lovely to chat with you. Um, so you you blog at nicoleconnor.com.au. Is there That's anywhere right. else that we might want to look for you or anything um, you're doing? Look, <laughs> no, I think <laughs> at the moment um, your life is busy. I'm moving again. So the blog, the blog is one place and, you know, I'll be writing a little bit more in the future, but at the moment, the blog will inform people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, the, yeah, the blog's wonderful. Yeah, so I will um, let people know of any other place. I I do have you know, art, like scholarly articles on academia, but I don't know whether that's of interest to anybody that's on apartheid sure. and you know, uh, refugees and things like that. But that's you know more okay. written under under that. It's not a blogging site, as yep. you know. So mm. yeah. Excellent. Oh, keep up the good work. We're, um, yeah, it, it's, as we said, it's, it's so lovely to have these voices um, and, and know that we're not, we're not alone and someone's forged that journey before us. So thanks so much, Nicole. Thanks for your time. Thank um, you, Tim. Thank you for the yeah. opportunity. It was a real pleasure to chat to you. Thank you. Thank you so much.